So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, man fans. I am Ollie Mann. This is The Modern Man. It's a magazine show. And here is what we have coming up for you this month. Right, so we saw rich gangsters and you you saw poor graduates. They were the superstars of my area. When your life choices are music, football or crime, how can you make your own way? How two lives cross paths, one day in London. Plus... If you are a guy, for whatever reason, whose testicles are a little bit hotter than they maybe should be... Alex Fox investigates whether your undies can affect your fertility and Ollie Peart pens his own Ulysses. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and hello to Neil in Boston, who says, Ollie, does your guest last month, Pippa Till, deliver her scones to Massachusetts? Uh, Listening to your show when I went out for my morning tea yesterday had me craving a scone. I did get one, and it was fairly decent, but still left something to be desired. Yes, it's on the wrong continent, Neil. You're not going to get a Bristol scone in, uh, in Boston. Um, and please, please, please don't write to me and tell me uh, whether you put the cream first or the jam first. Really couldn't care less about that. But it is an interesting thought. Uh, I will mention it to Pippa when we correspond. I'm not sure if freshly baked scone would fare that well being sent by airmail. Um, but thank you. Lots of you wrote in as well thanking us for covering sexsomnia in the foxhole last episode as well. Um, I'm about to read out some explicit feedback. So if there are young ears uh, present, then skip forward 30 seconds, if you please. Uh, Craig says, Ollie, I had sexsomnia a few years ago. I'd wake up and my wife would tell Tell me that I'd been trying to initiate sex in my sleep. I was never aware of any of it, and I was forceful at times, which is not the sort of relationship we have. I didn't know how to deal with it. The thing that seemed to help us was masturbating before bed, and this very rarely happens now. Fascinating. Thank you, Craig. Um, and this is in from Simon in Yokeen, which is in the city of Perth in Western Australia. Apparently, I'd never heard of it either. Um, on TripAdvisor, the number one thing to do, by the way, in Yokeen is visit the kosher deli, I've discovered. So maybe you can't get scones in Yokeen either, but you can get bagels. Uh, Simon says, Ollie, thank you for your podcast. I've learned a lot. I've been listening whilst doing my daily stagger around a few local blocks. The team's combined sense of humour tickles my fancy and has prompted me to buy you all a beer. Thank you, Simon. Uh, can you do me a favour, though, he says, and try to make sure it's a cold one. I can't stand warm beer being a sand groper. <laughs> for you, Simon, anything. Uh, this time of year, absolutely. Crisp and cool, although you are wrong. A warm beer does have its place, although that place is probably 
uh, Kent in November. Uh, if you would like to donate some money to help us keep the lights on, then visit our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and click Beer Money to securely pledge the price of a pint to this, your favourite independent podcast. Uh, other man fans who have obliged this month are James Hanicroot, Yumiko Kajiwara, and Martin Jones. Thank you all. Uh, Martin has upped his contributions from annual to monthly. What a doot. Um, now, we have a superb show coming up for you today. The late Joan Rivers gets a shout out in the most unexpected context. You will not see it coming, even with this warning. <laughs> but uh, before we get going, I must just tip my hat to our sponsors for this episode, Wine 52. They are the sister company of our longtime friends, Beer 52. And like their salubrious siblings, they will send you a box of free booze just for listening to this show. How does that sound? All you need to do is pay postage and packing. Go to wine52.com slash man and cover the postage costs of $5.95 and you'll get three bottles right now, uh, currently from the Puglia region of Italy. And it's brilliant trying new wines, knowing that you are supporting small producers as well. But it's not just that. Wine 52 also sends you with your wines each time a free magazine called Glug which is tasting notes, basically, so you can sound like you know what you're talking about at dinner parties, but also includes some genuinely illuminating features. For example, this month I learned how to make a Spanish summer G&T. Basically, you put 20 mils of rosé wine into your gin and tonic with berries and peppercorns and grapefruit wedges and stuff. Try it. It has become my summer drink. Um, Simon would approve. It's cold. Uh, anyway, uh, try out their service, wine52.com slash M-A-N-N. After your free case, you'll be part of the monthly wine club, but there's no minimum commitment. That is wine, the numbers five and two.com slash M-A-N-N to claim your case today. And thanks again to them. Right, coming up today, you will learn who has the most read newsletter on Substack. You'll learn what your sedentary job might be doing to your testicles and you'll learn how to use a suite to get a job. Let's go. Time for the Zeitgeist with Manscaped, your trends tested with Ollie Pitt, who actually tweeted something that made me laugh out loud. I bet you don't even know what it was that you tweeted that made me laugh, Ollie. Absolutely not. I mean, I've been on Twitter for, I don't know, since like 2011. I don't think I've tweeted anything in that time that's ever made you even raise a smile that's not true oh. i rarely have physical reactions to your utterances <laughs> but it was um after uh after sam Ryder represented britain at eurovision yes. ollie pitt tweeted that blonde hair and ginger beards are finally fashionable which they are <laughs> and what did i do just a few days after that happened i got my hair cut very very short Look how short it is. Yeah, good audio content that, Ollie, showing me your hair on a webcam that our listeners can't see. In fact, we're going to talk about a different kind of internet content that you've been generating this month in response to your challenge from Julian in Kentish Town, who challenged you to see whether you can become a Substack millionaire. Yeah, it was very, very ambitious. Basically, it is a paid-for newsletter creation tool. So it, it allows you to write a newsletter and distribute it for free or to paid up subscribers so you can choose which bits of your content is paid for and which bits of it are free so you can monetize your yeah. newsletter basically that's the deal and is it an email or is it an app that people have to visit 
So they've got an Apple app on iOS. They haven't got one for Android. What? Y- yeah, yeah. Substack doesn't have an Android app yet. No, it does not have one. But it's also That's mad. Well, it's also a website and it's a newsletter. So it's kind of it's kind of a mashup between a blog and a newsletter because you can go to somebody's Substack, right? So you can actually visit it and you can yeah. go through their content like you would do a blog. But it will appear in your email inbox as well i can't believe i can't get over the fact they haven't got an, an android app <laughs> you were genuinely you, your reaction was ridiculous people email me all the time asking if we would like an android app developed and it costs about 500 dollars. like <laughs> i you know if i had 100 million in venture capital funds <laughs> i'd get round to it you know what i mean like it would be on the list i think yeah i mean Substack are going to have an Android app in the near future. There's absolutely no doubt, right? The company's been valued at something like six hundred and fifty million dollars. They've only exactly. been, yeah, they've only been going since twenty seventeen, and they now have over a million paid up subscribers. I think you would describe the demographic of Substack as ABC one. Listens to Classic FM, shops at Waitrose. Exactly. Yeah, there there are right. some big names which have been drawn to Substack uh, since the pandemic, basically. Uh, Dan Rather. Edward Snowden and Salman Rushdie have all signed up to the platform. What you're expecting when you go on there is quality writing. That's what you're looking for. Quality writing from well-known writers. And, well, the biggest known person on there is actually a historian. She's got the most read substack. Her name's Heather Cox Richardson. Fascinating. I do a history podcast and I haven't encountered her. And she's the most popular person on substack, is she? What does she specialise in? Well, just opinion pieces, actually. But she's so massive that in February of this year, Joe Biden bypassed print media and decided to have a sit-down conversation with her. She has tens of thousands of paid-up subscribers. To be fair, I think any conversation with Joe Biden is a sit-down conversation. (laughs) I mean... Anything else is just a little bit too stressful yeah, for him at this point. He just wanted yeah. to sit down, actually. He just so happened to be there. <laughs> he was just getting a bit tired and she was just there. It's like, oh, He didn't I make it down? to the print media green room, in yeah. fact. Yeah. It's like, I'll just sit here. She was waiting outside because she wasn't allowed in, but he needed a sit down. What kind of money are we talking? The top 10 substacks between them are making around $20 million. That number is maybe a year or so out of date. So it's probably quite a lot more than that because Substack's actually doubled its um, paid up subscribers in the space of 12 months from half a million to a million. So yeah, but just to kind of put that in perspective, I mean, that's the top 10. I mean, the number one uh, YouTuber, like richest YouTuber last year, is uh, not Salman Rushdie. It's not Salman Rushdie. It's a so chap- created an opportunity. It's a chap- but go on, yeah. How much? How much is the number one YouTuber? Chap called, made, yeah. chap called Mr Beast, <laughs> who made uh, fifty-four million dollars just on his own. But it's a different demographic, isn't it? I mean, if you've got to oh, be yeah, 100%. popular yeah. on YouTube, you've basically got to be talking about video games or weird conspiracy stuff, and you've got to be extremely good-looking. But Substack do have massive ambition by the looks of things they're delving into the world of podcasts and they're delving into the world of video as well so you can post videos and you can post uh basically voice notes less so than podcasts they're kind of voice notes so Um, fudged isn't it because that was kind of like that was patreon's (laughs) thing wasn't it is that they're kind of a way of supporting podcasters but if substack are distributing audio to an email list it's like the 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 lines are becoming very blurry yeah i mean it's, it's basically the platform for all of it i mean you could you could just host all of your content on there if you wanted to. One of the bigger names on there, Patty Smith, who is... Uh, do you know Patty Smith? Yeah, as in the alternative music singer. Yeah, so she's quite big on Substack. What she's done is she's created a bit of community and she posts videos of herself with her cat 
and she'll sort of play acoustic versions of some of her tracks and things like that uh during lockdown she was writing a book um which was sort of like a, a diary through through the covid era and rather than sort of wait for a publisher to sign a deal and then a couple of years later she get the money she was like i'm just going to drip feed it on substack and get people to pay for it that way and that's what she did so people are paying for exclusive content actually from well-known names you know i think that's kind of the key which, you know, with respect, is not the department that you're slotting into, is it? I mean, I know you've had a long-running <laughs> column in Ferment magazine, but yeah. you're unlikely to bring people along from that, or, or at least, you know, Zaman uh, Rushdie numbers. So if you're a normal, how do you mm. go about building a, an audience on Substack? Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? And uh, I was sort of a bit stuck with this one, Ollie. So what I thought I would do is reach out to some Substackers. One of them got back to me a substack called flowstate.fm now flowstate is a substack that posts daily and it will post uh, a music recommendation of uh, sort of an instrumental artist so like music to work to hence flowstate oh you've already got in there of course with captain spronk your alter ego yeah absolutely you know i am a devoted following there that would easily easily <laughs> scale i haven't actually checked the figures on that recently i'll tell you <laughs> They said, well, what you need to do is find a niche, basically, but something that you can mm. talk about that is an opinion that's not often heard. OK, and what is your substack about? The thing I know most about and the least about, Ollie, my mind. Yeah, well, that is niche. And I thought, basically, all I need to do, and to make things as simple for me as possible, is it gives me an opportunity to just spout what's ever in my mind and give no rhyme or reasoning to it, really, just that... It came from my mind, so that's the loose association with mental health. That was kind of enough for me. And it worked for James Joyce. <laughs> Would you like to have a listen, Ollie? Uh, sure. I thought you had to read it. I'm not going to read it myself. I thought it'd be good to get somebody else to read it. So I, I got my uh, good friend, fellow podcaster and ex-professional snowboarder, Tim Warwood, to read it for me. Right. You're probably not supposed to say mental. I'm sorry if not. It's just probably the only best way that I found to describe the neurological fart festival that's going on in my head. It's mental. This substack is a frank and honest delve into my mind in the hope I can discover some of its inner workings, trappings and quirks so that I can understand it better and make it better. Because it's not well at the moment. It's on pills every day and has been for over two years and recently it's taken an absolute battering. This won't be a Boo-hoo, I'm so sad, ramble into the void, but a genuine exploration into my mind and pondering of why the hell, at times, my mind just breaks. Because that's what it feels like. It's broken. Good bit of writing that, Ollie. Thank you very much. Felt uh, quite revealing, though, having somebody read it, actually. <laughs> Yeah, does it sound like does that sound like how you imagine it in your own head when you're writing it? Yeah, a little bit, but it's weird, isn't it? Because, you know, writing something and then clicking post on the internet is kind of fine because it's kind of out there and you don't really think about it and somebody's reading it in their own voice, but then hear that back and somebody yeah. reading it, you're a bit like, "Oh, am I okay? I'm fine." <laughs> 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 good you are fine yeah, i'm all that's right good I mean, yes <laughs> but you are fine. i mean that's the point of what you're saying isn't it you're saying you you're on pills you've had depression but you are fine mm. that is actually i think something that would uh resonate with a lot of people listening to this very often you're looking for someone else who's got similar experiences to you in this field aren't you so actually i, I can imagine that that would hook people in how many 
How many? How many? I didn't ask. How many people did find it? Well, from that initial post, so that was my first post. I got three subscribers. Wow! <gasps> Who you don't know from Adam? I don't think I know because it only gives you their email address, right? So you know. GDPR. I've got access to your email addresses. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but that, that's all it gives you. So I don't know. I have no idea. It could just be my mum that set up several email addresses, but I don't think so. I yeah. think they're all different people. I actually genuinely, I know normally if you'd say three have been attracted to anything that you've done in the public sphere, I'd go into cynical mode. But you have, you've gone on there not as a celebrity. You've said something that's honest, and you have got three people that are willing to pay for more on the basis of that one ooh, thing. Did you put it on ooh, Twitter or something, ooh. though? Okay, yeah, no, let's get some clarification here, Ollie, because I, right, I do okay. feel like your reaction was a little bit like, oh, wow, that's really good. And I thought, maybe he's just doing that to yeah. be nice because he feels like there's something wrong with me. They did not pay. Uh, so what I had to do, uh, I, yeah, okay. so what I had to do, there's no commitment apart from clicking subscribe. Uh, they didn't have to enter in their card details. Rope them in right. with the good okay. stuff. I thought I'll okay. approach it like a drug dealer. Okay, get them hooked, right. then charge them later. No, I get it. I get it. I'm just, if, if they haven't put in their credit card details, it is a little bit less exciting. I mean, what is 1% of three? Yeah, exactly. I don't even yeah, know. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's quite. Conversion it, rate is going to be yeah, low. It's quite a lot less. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's terrible. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. But you've done one post. It'd be ridiculous. It would be absurd for someone to pay. Yeah. At this point. Absolutely. So what next? Well, I did another post, didn't I? Trying to focus a brain is like trying to focus a jellyfish. I've tried many, many ways to focus my brain. I've piped the sound of a cafe into my ears, used a Pomodoro timer, drank coffee, lots and lots of coffee, and switched off the internet. While some of these work for a bit, I never pursue them long enough to form a habit. So by the time my next brain fart, fog, glitch happens, whatever... I've no device for fixing it and end up staring at a blinking cursor for 48 minutes. How did that one go? Well, okay, so at this point, right, Mm -hmm. this is when Flow State agreed to cross-promote my Substack. I gave him a one-line, one-sentence bio as per his request. I handed over a really great recommendation for for some music. So after that post... I doubled my subscribers. <laughs> so you're in double digits? Uh, no, eight. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a start, isn't it? It's, it's a, start. a start. It's a start. I mean, it's just the thing. It's like if you literally stood on the corner of your high street and shouted at people through a megaphone, you'd get more than eight. Uh, I, yes, you're absolutely right. Yes, that's exactly what would happen. Maybe I should try that. It's the next trendy startup, you know, Ollie. As we were talking, by the way, I've just got another subscriber. So I've actually got nine now. Mazatov. <laughs> so what's next? Have you have you looked at any other angles to approach this problem? Yeah, I do, basically, I don't think I'm controversial enough. You see, so Substack, right, is on the front line of the culture wars. Okay, you've got Graham Linehan, who's churning out all kinds of crap on there, riling people up. Is that where he went? Because I knew, because I I used to follow Graham Linehan on Twitter because he wrote Father Ted and was funny and interesting. Yes, and then it all became about anti-trans rights stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I was so like, now... this is weird. What, why has this happened? And then he disappeared. So that's what happened. Is he went to Substack? Is it just full of people that can't be anywhere else? Yeah, basically, there's some really prominent anti-vax newsletters on there, which between them generate around two and a half million dollars 
uh, last year. So they're doing really well. And part of the reason of that, and it's part of the criticism of Substack in the first place, is that they're just not moderating that kind of content. There's very yeah. little kind of fact checking or, or moderation that's going on. And, you know, it's back to the early days of, of Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, we're a tool. We're not a publisher even though clearly they are the publisher. They are definitely <laughs> a publisher. I mean, people are literally bypassing yeah. publishers to go to this publisher. That's exactly <laughs> what they are. You know, They'd say, Substack would say, wouldn't they, that they are allowing people to self-publish, and that's the distinction. So someone's responsible for what they put out in the world. That's what they would say, yes. Yeah. 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 So it is great in that respect. You have got people who are able to publish things that they're really passionate about, that perhaps a traditional publisher might not have jumped on, or they haven't been able to persuade to give them money to do it's just that it also means it's a platform where you can spout a load of bullshit if you wanted to and charge people for it okay i think we should reveal your challenge for next month ollie pitt which comes from listener ollie man in south hertfordshire oh what a knob <laughs> it's from you genuinely it's from you well, yeah well so basically right so as you know uh, if you would yes. like to suggest a trend for ollie to investigate in a future edition of the show you can head to bondman with two ends.co.uk and fill in the feedback form and suggest a challenge but what you don't know listening to this is something that i know is what you are about to go and do ollie pitt and i thought actually what you're about to do for your day job is in itself an interesting trend yeah i'm i'm, I'm off to the falklands on uh well, first thing Monday morning at about 1am, actually, my flight leaves. How do you even get to the Falklands, by the way? RAF Bryce Norton, and then uh, you refuel in Cape Verde, and then you fly on to, to the Falklands. It takes about 18 hours, I think, which isn't too bad. But from what I gather, the plane's not all that fancy. So okay. Now, you're going for journalistic purposes as part of your day job. I am. But war tourism is a thing, mm. isn't it? It's the, what is it, the 40th anniversary this year of the Falklands conflict? It is, yeah. 1982, yeah. yeah, it's the 40th anniversary, that's right. Which I, I know probably doesn't mean very much to our international listeners, unless they happen to be in Argentina, of course, but obviously it was a big deal here in Britain. It seems to me that there's a lot of this going on. Like, you know, when I was in Northern Ireland last year in Belfast, I mean, I went to the Titanic exhibit. I didn't do any of the Troubles tours, but there's a lot of that going on. And like the taxi driver told me when I was being dropped off at the airport, that's what people go to Belfast for now, like to look at the Titanic exhibit and Game of Thrones, that's the other one, isn't it? But there's this huge amount of tourism to Belfast to look at where historic moments of conflict happened. And I thought, well, that's... I mean, I know people have always gone to look at, you know, places where bad things happened. Yeah. But it does feel a bit like it might be on the rise, I don't know, adventure tourism, Instagram. And I thought, well, I actually know someone who's going to the Falklands and it happens to be the person we ask to investigate trends, so we should get him to do that. It is weird, isn't it? Like, I, I mean, I've I've been to Cambodia to the killing fields. I've been there and that is a, you know, it is, it is an odd thing to kind of say that you've gone to go and visit. Yeah. I don't know, there's something strangely compelling about visiting these places, isn't there? I don't know what it is. I'll find out. I will travel 8,000 miles specifically to find out. <laughs> and because you are anyway. Um. Right, time to thank our sponsors for the zeitgeist, manscaped.com. And they have an exciting new product out. They do. The Manscaped Boxers 2.0 Premium Ultra Soft Boxer Briefs. Who'd have thought they could improve on the first generation of pants that softly cradled your balls? But they have. With a second generation, they've actually patented the name Jewel Pouch. So these pants now have... I mean, I don't need to describe how boxers briefs work for you, Ollie. There's, there's a bit where you put your dick... And that is called a jewel pouch <laughs> on these new pants. But it is the summer, sweaty sack summer. 
And if you want something with a bit more ventilation than your classic underwear, I have tried the Boxes 2.0, and I can recommend. No unsightly sweat patches will form. Yeah, and I'm so confident, right? Because I kept banging on about the first Manscaped boxer shorts about how soft they are. How ridiculous you feel now. How ignorant <laughs> yeah. you were. I've got a box here. I'm going to open them to feel how soft they are. Okay. Oh, yeah, man. They are. That is very soft, isn't it? That's like silk. That's like silk. They're not silk. Are they? It's micromodal fabric is what it is. It's buttery soft oh. and breathable, you better believe. You can choose from a range of designs and colours and sizes range from small to 3XL. What size are you, Ollie? <laughs> I'm not being paid enough to tell you. But what I can say <laughs> is that I'm breathable all over. Uh, get 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code MAN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code M-A-N-N at manscaped.com. On which note, we must leave you for another month, Ollie. See you next month. See you next month. Music now, and our record of the month comes from the Isle of Wight's own Lauren Hibbard. The track is called I'm Insecure. Sounds like one of your Substack posts, Ollie. You know he plays a gold top. You know I have a gold top in my wardrobe. You know he likes it And my cool bags And now he's poking up in my business Tell me what's on your Amazon wish list What's in the bathroom, feeling kinda seasick No service, does my butt look big in this? You wipe the boat, now the kitchen is shaking I should've listened to the TripAdvisor rating It's your fault that my tummy is aching Now, today's middle feature tells the story of two men whose lives cross paths one afternoon in 2014. First, here's Reggie, who grew up on a council estate in East London. He spent a lot of his childhood there outside, playing football with friends as an escape because he didn't want to go back home. Both his parents, originally from Ghana, were heavily addicted to alcohol. There were times when I'll go in and I'll see my mum on the, on the kitchen floor with a beer can on the table and she's just sort of not really in tune of what's happening around her. I have to pick her up and take her into into her room and help her sober up. Wow. What like, age were you then? Uh, some, from primary school. So I was nine, ten. At the time, you don't know that it's not normal. So I didn't have any sort of friends or I didn't know the family dynamic or all of my friends to know that this is strange. I, I just thought these are the cars that I've been dealt with. So although it was challenging and I didn't like it, I didn't really know that it was too dissimilar to what my friends were going through. And your dad left home as well, didn't he, when you were that sort of age? Yeah, so he left home when I was about 11. So there was just so many words of war at home and sometimes the verbal argument became physical and my father decided to to leave. Um, so it was just my mum, my sister and I. Do you remember how they told you that was happening? They didn't say anything, it just happened. My dad just was in the house less and less. I rarely saw him in the house and then was told somehow that he or lived in uh, Northampton. One minute, we're all a family of four, next minute it's a family of three. What was school like for you? Primary school, I was quite mischievous. So teachers would call my mum's phone and say, oh, Reggie's been in trouble. And, you know, she was constantly receiving 
calls about my behavior and parents evening weren't the best. So she thought secondary school to eliminate that, she would um, send me to the same school as my sister, who's two years my senior, so that she could almost keep an eye on me. But I didn't want that. So when it was time to pick your secondary school, you get a piece of paper and you fill out your first choice, second choice, etc. And I, I remember I got a pencil, so I wasn't even a pen. And I filled it in myself, forged my mum's signature and, and sent it off. <laughs> and did that mischievous streak continue? What kind of behaviour are we talking about? Um, it, it, it did, yeah. I think it was just when you're with a group of friends, you become a bit more brave and you just do things as a collective. So like if someone we didn't like in school was annoying us, then we'll go to them after school and just instill our sort of presence on them and make them fearful. And it was just like playground bullies from a young age. I mean, would you have described yourself as a bully? I wouldn't, know. I wouldn't describe myself as a bully at all. I was more of a follower. So there were always guys that were bigger and stronger than me in my circle. Um, and the dynamic in school was if the the quickest way to be popular is if you've got a an older brother who's well-revered in the area or you're good at some sort of sport. At the time, football was the popular sport. And I was pretty good at football. So that course gave me the the pass to popularity in school from a young age. And you were a good footballer, right? You you ended up getting a youth contract. Yeah, so I played at youth professional and then youth semi-professional level. There was like a summer tournament in my area. Me and a few friends entered the tournament. And if you win the local one and you go to the, the wider tournament where you play at the former West Ham Stadium in, in Upton Park, I got scouted that day. Yeah, that's when I started to take football more seriously and wanted to forge a career out of it. But was there any backup plan? No, 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 no. No backup plan at all. Growing up, it was, you, you saw a majority of people become a footballer, a musician, or unfortunately follow a route of, of crime. And um, you know, I wasn't great at music and my mum wasn't going to let me become a criminal. So football was the only avenue that I saw in order to become successful. So once I realised that, oh, you know, I've got quite a bit of a talent that was what I wanted to pursue and you know it was just play football and hope that you can provide for yourself and your family and you say your mum wouldn't have let you be a criminal yeah how easy would it have been for you to ignore that though very easy um all the resources were there for anyone to become a criminal like in my area you had people that you know, were selling drugs and people that were involved in various forms of crime people that did fraud, people that carried weapons. You had the older guys on my estate who wore the latest clothes and they were the superstars of my area, right? So we saw rich gangsters and, you know, you saw poor graduates. So when you look at that dynamic and someone says, which one do you want to be? That voice in your head says, I want to be like the rich gangsters because they've got everything that we don't have. Like what? Um, like clothes and trainers and status and money. and Because we, we didn't grow up with much money at all. So when your trainers ripped, because we're playing football every single day, right? So we're using the same trainers every day. The soles of my trainers used to rip all the time. And the, the flap of the trainer used to rip. And you fall over, you get back up. You've got grays in your trousers and stuff. And then you look at it and... Yeah, my mum would always use super glue to fix the trainers about two or three times. And then once it's completely done, that's when you go to the shop and you buy new pairs of trainers. And same with the trousers, you sew up the stitch in a few times. And once it's done, 
that's when you can get new pair of trousers. So you see stuff that they're wearing and you think, oh, wow, you know, they look cool or they look stylish or they're the ones that we aspire to. So you look at them and you want to want to be like them. I am uh, one of two children. I have a, a brother who we're 13 months apart. My mother was born in Lahore. Uh, my grandfather was a Mancunian uh, who went to night school to get his engineering degree and then helped build quite a lot of the railways in India. My father was the son of a rubber planter who lived in Malaya. And, and my recollection of my childhood is largely idyllic. M- my mother contracted polio when she was three and she never walked again unaided. So she walked on crutches and, and latterly used a, a wheelchair but never, ever let that get in her way, never acknowledged it. She was extraordinarily resilient uh, in a really gentle way. My mother, for instance, chaired one of the largest charities in Calcutta when we lived there, which was uh, called the Women's Friendly Society. And what it did was it took unmarried mothers, who were obviously disgraced in India, who had you know small children, and gave them jobs as seamstresses and then they sold the products that they had embroidered uh, in order to provide a living for these women and my mother was enormously committed to it but I think she just quietly felt that was a way that she could make a difference and she did and and she worked very hard at that. And did you have help at home? Did you have domestic staff? We did, we did. So we didn't have anybody living in but they would come in, you know, they lived nearby and we had Um, you know, a butler, a cook, um, what they called a sweeper. So we had two dogs. My mother obviously couldn't walk them and my father was at work. So, um, you know, he would do a bit of cleaning and he would also walk the dogs. Um, And, you know, that that was our little compliment. And a driver? We did have a driver, obviously, um, because uh, my mother couldn't drive either. But both my parents were keen to make sure that they were people who were treated as people rather than as servants in their own right. When my father worked for the Chartered Bank, um, he found out one day, one of the people came to see him, he was quite senior in the, he was head of the Indian operation, and somebody came and said, you know, Mr Gupta is retiring, and could he start again in another job on Monday? And my father said, well, if he's retiring, why why would he need to do that? I mean, great, but, but sort of what's going on? And they said, well, you know, he's got nothing to live on. And my father said, well, what about his pension? And they said, no, 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 you know, the Indian employees don't have pensions. Uh, and my father was just completely outraged. And on his next trip back to England, because of this pre-internet, etc., when he went to head office, he said, you know, I just can't work for a bank that does this. And so the Charter Bank was the first organisation in India to introduce pensions for overseas employees, as they called them. What was your school like? So I was at boarding school in England from the age of seven, My parents were very concerned, obviously, living in India, the communications were pretty scant in those days. So they sent me half a year early and sent my brother half a year late so we could start at the same time. Did you miss them? Big time. Big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I felt very loved and always had my brother. And my mother wrote to us every single day at prep school. So these airmail letters would arrive. And um, I always felt very much in touch with what was going on. Although it sounds like a, a, a very lucrative existence these days, you know, my father worked for an international bank. He was equivalent to the Calcutta branch manager of Lloyd's Bank in many ways. So he made a living, but it wasn't, you know, we, we weren't rich at all. We had no, no, you know, massive wealth uh, inherited or otherwise. And so therefore, 
I was aware that when sort of school fee payments and things came in, you know, there was a bit of sort of, not concern, but, you know, an awareness that this was a big part of what my parents' disposable income was going on. And I thought, I never want to be worried about money. And so I was quite driven when I was at university to make my way in a way. I I didn't want to be rich as such. I just didn't want to have to worry about money. And my dream at that point was to end up with a vineyard in Tuscany. That was my sort of (laughs) idealistic dream. It was summer in the same the same park in the summer. We was all together and we were you know, playing games together or just hanging out. And these guys came over and at first we didn't know who they were, but those guys that came over and my friends were having a conversation and it, it turned physical quite quickly. Um, and then more of their guys started to come over and it just turned into like a brawl. And they had dogs and their dogs were you know, running and, and chasing people and they for what are you just guys from different postcodes basically yeah it was it was postcode driven it was territorially driven it was it was based on just status and prominence and you know we run this part of the area and someone else disagrees so it then turns goes from verbal to physical very quickly I went away with a few of my friends to go into a house to to they were calling some people to, to come down. And as we went down, one of my friends was being chased and he ran into a corner shop. And when he ran into the corner shop, one of the guys followed him and, and stabbed him. And You then, saw that? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, I saw it. With my own eyes, yeah, I saw it. And at the time, it was, I was very desensitized. So I didn't, I can't remember how I felt, but I, I still got the, the, his face, his face in my mind now. Um, I just heard him screaming and the guy ran out and, and ran off and um, he he strangely got up and he was okay. Um, and then from that point, I saw my bus from across the street, ran across the road and I jumped, off the, I jumped on the bus, went home and I remember just crying on the way home because I didn't know what was happening. And you didn't call the police? No, no, no. You don't, you don't do that in my area. <laughs> so police were the last people you call when you're in trouble. I've lost five of my friends to life and gun crime and over two handful of my friends from my school and surrounding schools that I knew or were close to have gone to prison at least once. So it's a statistic I probably wasn't running away from if I continued along that path. So it's hard to say how close I was, but it was very, very easy if... If I was struggling for cash or if I really wanted to make quick money, it was a, it was literally a phone call away. You just pick up the phone, you call someone and you say, I want to be involved and they'll sort you out with whatever it is that you needed. And you can go on the street and start making money. It's, it's very, very simple and access is very easy. And also like it's obvious as a grown up from a distance looking at that story to think, well, those guys that were selling the drugs and carrying the weapons, they're using the younger kids as part of their network for a whole variety of reasons you know they're more likely to evade being arrested and you know they can get into places that older people can't whatever but that sort of brotherliness is genuine isn't it I mean just because they're using it it is a real connection that you have with people all around you that's what there is and and that's why it's so difficult and hard to understand when you're explaining it because when I explain it to anyone else it's like 
why would anyone do that? But when you're there, that brotherliness that you touched on, that sense of community, that sense of family, it makes you feel like you're, you belong, right? It makes you feel like you're a part of something. And it's not like you meet a stranger and they say, hold this and go and do our dough work for us. They buy you food. They look after you in sense of, you know, buy you trainers or they'll put their arm around you. And, you know, if they say, if you're ever in trouble, then, you know, you call my phone. So when you go into school and you're, you know, if you're getting in trouble, you know that you've got, you've almost got an insurance, right? You've got someone that you can call to, to come and help you out. So it's not like a, a stranger giving drugs or weapons to a, a young person and saying, go and do this. It's, it starts off quite genuine and then it almost involves in, into that if that makes sense. I worked for this American bank and it culminated me doing a a six-month training program in the United States. And that was a life-changing experience for me because I'd never been to the States other than on on a trip at the end of my first year of graduate training. And I then understood everything that is, in a sense, the positive that one thinks about when one thinks about the United States of America. You know, we're talking 1985. Reagan had come to power in 1980. He'd unleashed this extraordinary sort of economic energy. And what I loved about the States was they really didn't care where you came from. And I'd I'd bridled about that even when I was at university and thought, I really don't like this sort of limiting structure of the UK merchant banks. I, I thought it was a parochial, actually. What do you mean by limiting structure? Um, It felt as if you had to be a particular type of person to go and join them. And I have always resisted that classification. But is that the kind of person that you were anyway? No, I don't think so. Because I think I think I, you know, I remember um, Alan Bennett wrote a brilliant play about Guy Burgess called An Englishman Abroad. And Burgess says, you know, I, I wore the clothes and spoke the way that, you know, my class spoke, but I was never of them. And I felt very similar to that in the sense that I felt your personality and your character were much, much more important than, for want of a better word, you know, where you were at school. And although I was at a, you know, a decent public school and all of that, that to me seemed utterly irrelevant relative to you know, are you a decent human being who can be kind and, and thoughtful and considerate? But also, what can you do for the company, I guess? And that's the point about the American business, isn't it? It was totally. just about what can you do for the bottom line. Completely. But in England, not so. Um, it was my perception. So maybe it's unfair, but my perception was that if you went and joined one of these these merchant banks, as they were then called, you had to be a particular type. And then your dad came back to live yeah. with you. yeah. Uh, he was made redundant and having a hard time financially. So he came to live with us. It was weird because I had grown up for a couple of years without him there. So I was almost used to not having him there. My mum was sober at that time. So when he came, I didn't really know what to expect. But a part of me felt like I didn't need him there because you know my mum had done such a great job. But the other half of me was willing to rebuild something with him again the feeling of belonging and the someone putting an arm around you that that fatherly figure or that male figure that I and a lot of my friends longed for when he came to live with us again I thought maybe I could establish that what happened 
so he he tried to get on his feet. He was looking for jobs and you know trying to trying to change his his life around essentially. But he was still drinking and still had a drink problem. And there was one time when he he woke up, wasn't feeling too well, and we thought it was his diabetes playing up. Um, so my mum called the ambulance as a precautionary measure and I, I went out the house. So that day was Father's Day. The next day I went to training and, and to college and I called my mum because I wanted the hospital details as I wanted to go and see him. My mum said I should come home first so that we could all go together. So I travelled on a train back home from, from college, not thinking anything of it. I thought he's in hospital a couple of days and he'll he'll be out. And I walked in and I had a big football bag and I, my my mum and a few of my aunties were there and I dropped my bag and my mum told me to sit down. And that confused me because I thought we were just going to the hospital. Why am I having to sit down? And there was like a silence in the room and my mum said, dad didn't make it, he, he he's dead. And when she said that, she just started like crying and, and, and broke down. And I just repeated the sentence, so what do you mean, you know, dad's dead? And she couldn't answer me. And then I just ran out the house and um, I went to a church near my house and just sat there for a couple of hours just to gather my thoughts and to, yeah, just to process everything that I just heard. I was thinking about my dad and my family and more so about my mum and my sister. And a question that was pondering on my mind was how can I be of more use to my family now and support my family now? More so financially, because see, when someone passed away, there's funeral costs and there's, you know, everyone has to work together to, to, to look after each other and stuff. So in that moment, thoughts were just going in my head and I decided to take a bold, leap of faith at that point and just stop playing football and find something else long-term that would allow me to look after myself and, and my family. What was on the menu of options? Nothing. And that was the scary part um, because I was playing football and studying at, at the same time, but the academia side of things wasn't anything that I was really focused on at all. So I didn't know what I was really good at. <laughs> um, uh, I knew that I was okay at maths because I finished my maths GCSEs quite early. But other than that, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So what kind of things were you coming up with? I saw business apprenticeships. I saw jobs to become an electrician. So IT apprenticeships, plumbing apprenticeships. But I was a little confused at the time as to how I was going to get there. The only entry I knew was you got to apply and hope that you, you get a job. And at this point, you might think someone in that school would be able to answer that question for you. No, because we didn't... It's, it's going to sound really bad, but I, no one in my school was anyone that I like look up to, right? I didn't look up to any of the, the teachers or... Not in a bad way, but they just didn't... They hadn't done anything that interested me really but no one ever came to visit the school and tell you about their job oh my secondary school yeah no 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 one no one no one saw how'd you get so rich one day i was watching telly 
and there was a show by the late Joan Rivers called How Do You Get So Rich? And the show is, it's, it's a comedy show where she goes to certain places in America and asks, asks random people, you know, what did you do to buy this okay. Ferrari? How'd you get so rich? I sell hot dog carts and hot dogs. So the hot dog carts on the street? I'm responsible for about 80% of all the hot dog carts in the United States. I have the largest kosher hot dog in the world. So it's, it's literally Joan Rivers with a microphone walking down Sunset Strip, shoving it in the faces of people driving convertibles. Exactly that. <laughs> convertibles or, you know, you had women with, with really expensive handbags and they will ask the same question and it was, and sometimes, obviously staged, Joan Rivers will get in the car and drive, they'll drive to their house and you see the houses and you see, you know, if they made their wealth through selling certain types of products, then they'll show the product, if it's a hair product or a you know, beauty product or a technolog technological product, Joan Rivers will get access to all of these things. There was so much practicality in that show. I just remember watching it thinking, this is, this is what I, I want, right? Joe Rivers is getting so much exposure by asking these random people <laughs> the questions and they're just spewing to her how they amass wealth. And I was thinking, surely that would work for me if I did it. So after watching that, I just Googled wealthy errors in, in the UK and then narrowed my search to wealthy errors in London. Mm -hmm. What were they? Off the top of my head, I remember it was Kensington and Chelsea, Bishop's Avenue, and there was three others, which I can't remember now, but I wrote five names to begin with on a piece of paper. What, had you been to any of those places? Before? Yeah. No. So the plan was to travel to the areas that I noted down on a piece of paper and ask random people on the street initially. I had a pitch in my head about what I was going to say when I met the people. Hi, my name is Reggie. I'm from Newham in East London. I'm just in the area to find out what skills you had that's allowed you to live here. Do you remember that first person you stopped? I do, yeah. I remember I stopped a, a gentleman and he had uh, two kids, I think it was. And I stopped him and I said, sorry, have you got a minute? And he slowed down walking, but was still walking away from me. And I said, oh, said my pitch to him. And he just said, sorry, I haven't got time. And that was my first rejection. And there was one apartment building, but I thought it was one house. So it was a really big apartment. And I walk in and the guy's at the front and I thought he was the owner of the house. And I started to talk to him for about five minutes before I realized you know, he was the concierge and he didn't live there and he was just working there on the day. Now that conversation lasted about 10 minutes wanted to lead the conversation quite quickly, but I didn't know how to just like move away from, from the person. I saw a guy cross the road, asking the same question. And he gave me some great advice. He said, you know, work hard in, in school, try and get experience abroad if you can. And once he gave me the advice, I, I walked off. He had an Aston Martin and he pulled up beside me and pulled out a wad of cash and gave me 40 pounds and said, you seem like a really nice young man that's doing great and I just want to wish you all the best. Take 40 quid. Wow. And yeah, so I was 40 pound richer on the day. The other thing as well though, is that in truth, the answer for a lot of those people that you stopped would have been 
the reason they're so rich really was a combination of you know nepotism upbringing and privilege which right. you do not have access to with your background and i didn't know that so talking to people and finding out how they amass wealth a lot of the people amassed it through inheritance and through tools and avenues that i i just i couldn't which is why i decided to diversify my strategy and, and knock on people's doors what reaction did you get as a young black man in South Kensington, knocking on rich people's doors? People told me to go away. One gentleman threatened to call the police. And then this particular door buzzed the, the intercom and I gave her my pitch. And when she locks off the, the, the intercom, I thought, is she coming to the door or is that a sign for me to go away? So I had this rule in my head of, I knock on the door and someone doesn't come to the door within 20 seconds, I move on. So it counted to 20 in my head and within a couple of seconds she she opens the door and then she asks if it's part of a school project. And I said, no, I'm doing it off my own back. And then that's when she invited me into her house. What was the house like? It was really nice. <laughs> um, there was really high ceilings. Like the furniture was just, it just looked, I didn't want to touch anything because it just looked... <laughs> very different to what I was used to. And there was paintings on the wall and they just looked expensive. So when I walked in, I was looking around and I thought, you know, what, I'm not gonna touch anything. If she tells me to sit down, I'll sit down. I just wanna build a good impression. I don't want her to think that I'm being rude or intrusive in any way. And then you said? I asked her what skills she had to amass wealth. And she started to explain more about her background, her family, her family background. And within a couple of minutes, Quinton walks in, who was her husband. My daily job at BlackRock was making sure that the, that the unit trusts, the mutual funds, the pension funds that we managed were directed in the right way in, in terms of the, the risks they were taking in order to maximise the opportunities for the investors who were trusting us with their money. And I would spend a lot of time in meetings assessing that risk, talking to fund managers about what their views were and why, and making sure that we were doing our very best to perform for our clients. That was a large part of my day. How many staff were under you? About a thousand. Did you get much time off? No. I remember there was one year when I took 39 long-haul flights. I would usually ring Elizabeth and let her know when I was going to be home, but, but work would carry on because uh, the head office was in the States, so there were, there were calls into the wee small hours. So it was full-on. I mean, it was 100-hour weeks without any real exaggeration for quite a long time, but it was my choice. You know, it was exciting. I'd been out cycling in the park in, in Kensington Gardens, which, for those who don't know, is the left-hand side of Hyde Park, in effect. And, and we lived about five or six minutes away from that. Uh, and I got home and opened the door and I walked in and Elizabeth uh, was sitting at the dining table on our ground floor um, with a young man uh, and they both had a glass of water. And she said, this is Reggie. Still to come, more doors open, some close and uncovering the blueprint for success when The Modern Man returns, after this. Man fans, what do you get up to in the bathroom? Specifically, what do you put on your face? 
For years, I was a soap and water kind of guy, but frankly, as I got older, I noticed my skin getting drier and I could discern the difference when I used moisturizer. But those other products you hear about, scrubs, serums, I always found a little daunting, never really sure how and when to use them. Well, Tej Hanley make it easy. Their skincare system level one is a starter pack of all the products you'll need in straightforward packaging with instructions so you'll know exactly what it all does and when to use it. For example, there's a separate moisturizer for the mornings with SPF 20 in it. And it all smells pleasingly neutral, so I can use it with my favorite fragrance too. And so can you, because Teach Hanley is sponsoring today's episode, they're offering you a great deal. Just go to teej.com slash man and you'll get 30% off your first box, plus a free gift. That's T-I-E-G-E dot com slash M-A-N-N. That's an amazing deal. Man fans, can we talk about search history? Mine's pretty bad. How bad? Well, just think of some of the themes we've covered on this show. Espionage, mistaken identity, terrorism, and that's not to mention the foxhole. So, yeah, pretty bad. And I know you might be thinking, well, why don't you just use incognito mode then? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use and how many times you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why now I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers, so even your ISP can't see the sites you visit. They keep all your information secure by encrypting all of your data. It runs seamlessly in the background and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. So protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by Business Insider. And we've got a special deal for you, man fans. Head to expressvpn.com man and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash M-A-N-N. Let's return now to Reggie and Quintin's story. It's 2014, and they've just met for the first time in Quintin's Kensington townhouse. Reggie is a teenager who randomly knocked on the door, inspired by Joan Rivers, to ask the occupants how they got rich. Quintin, unbeknownst to Reggie, is the global head of Alpha Strategies for BlackRock, the largest money manager in the world. And he's curious to know more about the stranger his wife has just invited into their dining room. She said um, Reggie rang on the doorbell and just wanted to know how we ended up living in a house like this. And I thought that was fascinating. I didn't know how old he was at this stage, but it was clear that he was somewhere between sort of 16 and 18. Um, and when I was that age, I remember you know, being in parts of Chelsea and thinking, gosh, how does anybody end up affording a Volkswagen Golf GTI? So I thought, well, you know, that's quite an interesting question that I, that I recognize myself. So I, uh, I said to him, you know, mainly it's luck, but, but um, why do you want to know? And so he then told us his story. I, I went into as much as I could without sounding like I was talking too much. So I kept I tried to keep my answers as short as possible. So if he asked what I'm doing now, I, my response was, I'm playing football, but I don't want to play football anymore. Um, and he asked where my family are from. I said, my, my parents are from Ghana. My dad passed away 
it would have been a couple of months ago at that time. Yeah, I mentioned it to him, yeah. And I thought, goodness, that's a really tough thing to do. To, to, you know, as a, as a 16-year-old to lose your father, especially as a 16-year-old young man, that's a tough gig. My, my mother died when I was 26, my father when I was 37. So, so I was aware of what it was like when, you know, parents aren't around. But I immediately thought, gosh, that must be very tough for him. So I thought, well, how can I help this young man? So the way that I thought I was going to gather the information I needed was someone's going to tell me three things and I'm going to go away and work on it and build wealth for myself. But what Quinton did was he provided me with visibility into the industry that allowed him to become as wealthy as he is today. And I wasn't looking for that. I wasn't looking for anyone to give me a job or do any of those things. But what Quinton did was provide me with something that I hadn't had before. So to the point that we talked about those three avenues of music, football or crime, those were my avenues, but I had now been given a new avenue and a you know, visibility to something else. Which was what? Finance. And so I said to him, would it help if you came in and had some work experience? Because I thought that can only do him good, right? And if he doesn't like it, that's fine. But something that I felt would help him begin to understand there were choices out there that he might take advantage of. So he said, yes, he'd love to do that. And I said, well, fine, leave it with me. I'll get back in touch with you in the next couple of days. And when I went into work the next day, because we met on a Sunday, I talked to the chief administrative officer of my division and said, look, you know, I'd like to organize some work experience for this young man I met over the weekend. And uh, we got back in touch with him and asked him what dates would suit him. The 40 pounds that I got from the gentleman in Yasser Martin, I used that to go and buy some shirts and stuff to, to, to do the inside day in. So um, I turned up, I had like a black tie and it was yeah, really short. My shirt was a bit baggy. I used my school trousers because, and they were quite flary as well. And I had this Nike side pouch um, that, I, that I wore when I was out with my friends and stuff. And I remember I had a pair of glasses as well. And um, they had no, they weren't prescribed lenses or anything. Why but, did you bring a pair of glasses? Because I thought, I'm going to this place. I know that's a big company, so there must be really smart people there. And glasses probably will make me look smarter than I actually am. <laughs> so, so I sat down and as these undergraduates started to walk in, they had really sharp suits and they looked, they looked the part. And I remember taking off the glasses and thinking, there's no way I'm wearing these. I'm just going to try and be myself. And I put it in my side, I put it back in my side pouch. And Quentin had organised for you to meet a couple of other employees in particular. Yeah. Yeah, he did. His name was Abraxas Higgins. Seeing him come through, and he's got a big presence already. So he's you know, six foot five or whatever, and he's built like an athlete. So you can instantly recognise him when he walks in the room. Abraxas had a very similar background to me in the sense that he grew up on a West London estate. He's a black man. He played ice hockey at professional level and he gave up ice hockey to work in finance so there was things that resonated with with him as well so when he came to to talk to me we spoke for about an extra hour he was really open really vulnerable with me and that helped me as well and once we started talking I used him as like my my blueprint I said if he can do it then then I can do it and that was the first time I thought wow if someone like him can do it, and we have such similar stories, it's no longer about what skills did these people do to amass wealth. I can say, if I follow this blueprint, then that gets me in the door. And then when I'm in the door, 
I can build something for myself and consequently help my family. After that conversation, we, we went to a uh, dinner like a couple of weeks later where I could ask all my questions on the table. And he said, there's no question too personal. So I, I took him up on that. And I asked about things like salary. And he said, for graduates coming in, you could earn like 36,000 pounds as a graduate job a year, um, excluding a sign-on bonus and excluding a, a year-end bonus. And hearing those numbers, that was like my household income combined and, and doubled, right? So like that, that was like an obscene amount of money for me at the time. And then he started to talk to me about things like networking, things like going to university, striving for first-class internships. He provided me with the blueprint so that if I wanted to work in that industry, these are the things that I needed to tick off for me to, to get there. And I said, well, you, you know, in order to end up with the job that these guys do, you need to have a degree. Is that something you're thinking about uh, doing? And he said, not until now, but I certainly would consider it now. And I said, OK. And I was very aware that, you know, this was taking him into a realm which really, you know, I, I'm not Reggie's dad. And, you know, his mother, he was living at home with his mother. And so I said to him, I think it'd be a very good idea if, if I could meet your mother and just discuss this with her, because I don't want to start giving advice to somebody else's child. I mean, I didn't say that part to him, but, you know, I didn't want to start giving advice to somebody else's child without seeking the parental permission. So we arranged for his mother to, to come in, absolutely delightful woman. And I said to her, how would you feel about Reggie applying to go to university? And she said, I'd be absolutely thrilled. And so then we were on our way. I essentially had about four months to do two years worth of A-levels because I hadn't really focused on that before. So my A-level grades were BDD, so I didn't do great, but managed to get into university through clearing. Um, and I thought, once I get to university, that's when I'm going to focus all my attention on this because there's no more football as a, as not a distraction, but uh, I'm not going to focus my attention on two things. It's just going to be education and, and that's it. And I didn't know what course to study either. So I... Uh, called random universities and just said, hey, do you have something finance related? I didn't know what economics was. I never studied economics. I didn't know maths at A-levels. And on the website, I saw a language scheme that they had. And they asked, do you want to be a part of the language scheme? And I said, okay. They said, pick a language. And I remember looking at the list of languages and thinking, I want to pick the hardest language on here so that A, I sound smarter than I am, and B, people can take me more seriously when I start to apply for internships, which is part of the blueprint that Abraxas gave me. So I decided to study financial economics and Mandarin at university. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can you speak Mandarin now? I can't, no. Okay. <laughs> so it's no. kind of like the non-prescription lenses all over again. Exactly really. that. It was literally just to get myself in a door. And once I, once I got in the door, I realized I, I probably don't need this anymore. <laughs> First exam failed miserably, 25%. 25%? 25%. Was that a setback? It was, yeah. I was going to leave university after that, actually, because I'm doing a degree I don't want to do. I'm in a place I don't want to be in. I probably got the lowest in my economics cohort from memory, and it was the easiest exam that we was going to take. So all of these things, I thought, I'm not cut out for this. I'm not going to do it. I remember talking to Quinton briefly and didn't tell him what grade I got, but I was just 
telling him that I'm finding it quite challenging and he gave me some words of wisdom and which were what? It was just something along the lines of there are going to be some courses that you like and some you don't like so filter that out and just keep going essentially so I did and I was reminded what was at the end that goal of working in an industry that could provide for myself and my family so next exam after that three months in I managed to score 82% and then score 84% after that graduated with a 2-1 and started my career in finance what I saw was a young man who'd lost his father and who was trying to make his way and was asking for help I defy any person who has any sort of semblance of a decent value system to resist that request. And certainly I didn't want to resist it and I was only too happy to help, not least because if I wasn't around, I'd want other people to help my children in the same way. Reggie's colour and his diversity and his, his disadvantaged background had no bearing on that to me because he's a human being trying to make his way. And I am a massive believer, having lived and worked in the States, at seeing the way that people have taken agency, exercised it and made remarkable uh, strides in their lives. And obviously, a lot of people listening to this are in a position where they could be a mentor to someone and have possibly never considered it. You know, you don't have to be an executive at BlackRock (laughs) to offer your services, you know, in whatever job you do. Why is it worthwhile? When you look back on your life, wouldn't you like to look back and think about the positive impact that you've been able to help other people have on their lives? And secondly, never underestimate how much you learn from the people you're trying to help. Uh, You know, my, my experience and my friendship with Reggie is a delight. And what Reggie has taught me is the art of the possible. I, I knew it when I was his age, but sometimes you, you get sort of ingrained in your career and you, you develop shortcuts, but also blind spots. And, and to be reminded again of the possibilities that, that uh, present themselves to all of us at all times in our lives is enormously refreshing and regenerative. So when I graduated, I remember wearing a, a kente print tie, which is like an African print tie. And that was almost to honor my mum just through her sacrifices and her hard work. So when, we, when I graduated, it was for me, but more so for, for her, because I knew that I was going to be starting in an industry that could help support myself, but also support my family. But your connections with Quentin and with Black Rock actually didn't get you a job there in the end, did it? No, it didn't. I, um, Quinton never left my side. It wasn't like I didn't get into BlackRock and we sort of kept out of touch. We still kept in touch and he was still there to, to help me out and someone I could seek counsel from when I needed. So that helped. And once I graduated, I still managed to get myself in industry, but just in another way. Well, what I love about your story is that this slightly crazy plan of knocking on rich people's doors is effectively what you carried on doing to get a really good job later, except using yeah. the modern equivalent, which is LinkedIn, right? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the internships I did, um, because I was so hungry to get experience, and as I mentioned, the blueprint was there. Internships, internships, internships. Once I did one, if there wasn't internships available, I would use LinkedIn to research for like, I mean, senior employees at various different asset management companies. And I would write to them. I would go to the companies with a letter and ask for X, Y, Z person at the company. 
So turn up without an appointment. Turn up without an appointment, ask receptionist if said person works there. They would also ask, do you have an appointment? I'll say no. And sometimes that person will come down and I'll just hand them the note or I'll give an elevator pitch to them. I managed to get two of my work experiences in that way. And I wrote personalised letters to all of them and I put a suite inside of the, inside of the letter for two reasons. Um, first reason was, who doesn't like a suite? And second reason was, if they received the letter and usually there's piles of paper on there, my hope was the paper would lean to a certain side and they'll probably think, what's making this paper lean? And pick up the envelope, open it and read it. Reggie is just emblematic of so many people who've come from disadvantaged backgrounds. It could be Michael Caine. It could be a pop star um, who, who said, you know what, I'm just going to go and do this and has taken the initiative. And, and that takes real effort. There are no shortcuts. You have to do the work. But that's the problem, isn't it? It requires exceptionalism when you're from an underprivileged background. But if you're from a privileged background, you can sort of coast along and you might be lucky. That's undeniably true. But if you're from an underprivileged background, that's just your reality. As, as a society, part of what I think we're all collectively trying to do is get to a place where the playing field is a bit more level, not to use an overworked cliche, but that is the intent. And there's no doubt that progress has definitely been made but we're nowhere near where we need to be. I think Reggie's story is much more important for the message to people who come from backgrounds like his, which is if you have the determination, if you're prepared to go and knock on doors for two hours and just get no's, you're more likely to create your own luck than somebody gives up after they've knocked on one door. That's not easy. It's not in any sense relaxing. It's not fair. It's life. And what he's done is said, this is my response to the cards that I was dealt. I'm going to play that hand as best I can and look at the opportunities that he has created for himself. So you've achieved, I'm guessing, what you always wanted in terms of salary, and yeah. in terms of being able to look after your family. Yeah. But obviously, when you don't have anything, that's all you want. Mm. When you've got a little something... Your perspective shifts, doesn't it? It's about being happy as well as getting money. It's about being fulfilled. Are you happy? Yeah, um, I am happy. And it's interesting you say that because when I started this journey, it was, it was quite selfish because all I wanted to do was make something for myself and for my family. Like I just wanted to make money for myself and for the people around me in a legal way. But I realised that this journey is a lot bigger than myself and the amount of people that I've fortunately been able to impact in, in a positive way, that's the thing that keeps me going and that's the thing that keeps me driven. So it's no longer about making X, Y, Z to buy a big house or to do whatever it is that I maybe previously wanted to do, but also to open doors for more people to get into this industry as much as possible. So. Those are the things that keep me happy. And I think as long as I keep doing that, that's what's going to keep me satisfied and fulfilled. Being that visibility as well for other people from your background, right? Exactly. Being the, I say being the Quinton for other people. So Quinton gave me visibility, the guidance, and eventually gave me the hope. And I want to send that elevator down to bring others back up in, in the same way that Quinton did for me. And 
fortunately I've been able to to do that to many other people. It's not just one Reggie, but five, six, seven Reggies who have been impacted. Um, and that's because I saw that from someone else and just paying it forward. Are there people now then studying economics at university because you told them to? 100%, yeah. Yeah, there's people that they, they ask for advice and I can only give them what I, I did. And I, I will never tell anyone to, to do X, Y, Z because that's not what sort of Quinton and Abraxas did for me. They just gave me that visibility and said, this is what you know you can do, but they never pushed me or forced me to do anything. And that's the same thing I do for others. I, I tell them what works for me and what I think might be best, but ultimately it's your decision. It strikes me that so much of your story goes against your generation's practices. I mean, not scraping LinkedIn for contacts, that feels sort of on message, but writing people paper letters, yeah. knocking on people's actual doors, yeah. talking people to face face. Yeah. That's something that, you know, generations above you used to do, but people in their 20s generally don't. Yeah, and I think sometimes going back to those methods can make things a lot more personal. I still write letters to people that you know have impacted me or you know, people that I want to say thank you to. And that's something Quinton taught me, actually. He's taught me the power of letter writing because it just adds a bit more personality and it helps people to remember you more. So, for example, when I, I did a project with the former Prime Minister Theresa May and I, I wrote her a handwritten letter to say thank you and we kept in touch because of that and she wrote back to me and you know we're, we're still in touch today and she's become a friend over the years so it's another good mentor to have yeah exactly yeah not a bad mentor to have at all so um it's just little things like that where kind of goes against the tide and that sometimes can make you stand out Reggie Nelson and Quintin Price. Uh, Reggie has a book out now about his experiences. It's called Opening Doors. Uh, and there's an audiobook as well, narrated by him. I've put links in the show notes to that. Uh, and if you've got a story you would like to share on a future edition of the show, well, you know what to do. Head over to our website and click on the feedback form. We don't have time to answer every email we receive. We do read every single one of them. Uh, still to come, Alex Fox on how the underwear you're wearing might affect your fertility. That's next, after this. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When I say F, you say oxhole. It's the foxhole, your sex questions answered by Alex Fox. Greetings. Greetings, oxhole sounds like a really horrible rip-off stock cube. What have you been up to, Alex? I interviewed the comedian uh, Sadia Azmat, uh, who's a British Indian Muslim, all about her new memoir, which is called Sex Bomb. But it isn't an unauthorised biography of Moose Tea. It's got nothing to do with Moose Tea, um, but it is also a pun about um, being Muslim and uh, the stereotypical association with bombs in many people's minds, because Sadia is someone who 
uses quite subversive humour to talk about often difficult things. And I'll be honest, I thought the book was going to be a riot. I thought it was going to be really funny and is in places, but it's also quite challenging and deals with the darker aspects of what can happen when the way that you've brought up just doesn't fully prepare you for the context in which you find yourself becoming an adult with sexual desires, like being told that her sexuality or the lack of having sex was a really pure, um, valuable, desirable thing and that being a virgin made her a, a better person and a better Muslim versus also being told that uh, she wasn't allowed to think about sex or talk about sex despite that being you know such a, a supposedly in central part of what made her important as a woman it's interesting isn't it how all this stuff has become such a live issue again with these debates around sex and relationship educations in schools as well it's not as if you know people write these books and have these conversations in public and then 10 years later everybody's moved on it it, it always comes back we did we did talk about that um because like many people sadia's in school sex education was severely lacking. They put condoms on Bunsen burners, which is literally a surefire <laughs> way for them not to work, right? Uh, I think it be, that sets really quite unfair expectations of how sex is going to be very, very hot. It also gives a worrying glimpse into how the chemistry teacher feels about the Bunsen burners. <laughs> The whole book does a really good job of dissecting some pretty tough stuff uh, in ways that are very funny, very palatable, and it's an easy read about difficult topics. Okay, summer holiday read, perhaps. Um, Time for our question of sex, brought to you by The Handy, which isn't something you should bring to the beach. The Handy is, as hopefully our listeners know by now, an interactive masturbation machine for men that, amongst other willy-thrilling features, can be remotely controlled by a lover anywhere on the planet. And it comes from Craig from Baltimore, who says... This year, my wife and I plan to begin trying to conceive a baby. We would both be first-time parents. Neither of us has any diagnoses that would seem to impact our fertility, but we know that the journey to conception can sometimes be extremely difficult. I've recently started to get curious about some of the things that I slash we can do differently to increase our chances of success. I tend to wear boxer briefs, might wearing them instead of boxer shorts decrease the quality of my sperm? And when we get down to doing the deed, do you know how to prevent this from turning into a stressful chore? I, I actually get this question a lot from from men who are concerned about whether their underwear might mean that they're underperforming in terms of fertility. And the short answer is... If you're wearing something really restrictive or, more importantly, something that makes you really hot, then that's not ideal. The cooler mm. your balls and your, your your family jewels can be, the more you are likely to shine in terms of uh, conceiving a child. Um, so, yeah, some, wearing something that's that's got good airflow is, is a good idea. There is also underwear on the market that actively tries to support men's fertility by cooling their balls down further <laughs> really to, to yeah to to colder temperatures than than would be standard i mean i'm having sort of flashbacks back to biology at school and uh, you know how the testes are the perfect sack for the testicles because they keep everything at exactly the right temperature i remember that being a thing like your testicles need to be kept at exactly the right temperature different to the rest of your body like isn't the body already doing that 
Well, the whole reason that testicles dingle dangle in the way that they do is to try and take them away from the body heat to, to keep yeah. that, that sperm production factory at optimal temperature. One of the problems that we find today is that um, a lot of men are quite sedentary and sit down at desks all day or in vehicles. So rather than hanging freely uh, and swinging low like the sweet chariot it should be, your gonads actually get scrunched up towards your body yes. where they, they can get hotter. Um, equally using things like laptops or having you know any kind of equipment near your genital region that's, that, that produces heat is is unhelpful hot showers saunas lots of stuff in modern life can mean that the temperature of your testicles uh, is a little bit higher than than would be ideal some men as well just naturally their body temperature burns a little a little bit higher than than would be perfect for for uh, producing sperm a surprising number of men also have what's called a varicocele a, a little bit like you know how you get a varicose vein uh, popping out on your leg or somewhere like that mm. uh, a varicocele is a similar vascular problem inside the testicles where it means it's a vein that's sort of split um, inside your scrotum and because that means that blood is uh, flowing over a wider surface area it, it brings more heat to that area and it's less efficient at helping to keep the body cool. Is that visible though? I mean, can you look in a mirror and if you're looking at Thora Heard's legs, then you've got a problem or is it not? <laughs> I asked the same question of an expert and I was told it's less about what you can see with the naked eye when you're naked and more what you can feel. If you hold your sack in your hand and it feels, I quote, like a bag of worms... <laughs> then you may have opened a can of worms about your fertility. Um, but if you are a guy, for whatever reason, who whose testicles are a little bit hotter than they maybe should be or could be, there mm. is a product called Snowballs, <laughs> <laughs> co-founded by a chap I chatted to called Joshua Shoemake and his and his buddy, which is, they, these are... Uh, like boxer briefs that have a pouch on the front that you can put these frozen gel packs in called snow wedges supposedly very comfortable to wear um mm. they kind of mold to your 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 sack so that they cover the maximum surface area the research about uh testicular temperature and the link with fertility goes back to the 1960s um but then uh, re the real good scientific tests started to happen in the 80s and now there's there's a real wealth of research Joshua t was telling me that really does prove that even reducing the temperature of your bollocks by just one degree can have a really big impact upon your fertility. Um, it takes about 74 days for all of your sperm to, to regenerate but we know that that process is ongoing it's always happening so even wearing something like snowballs to reduce the temperature of your testicles for half an hour in one day could potentially help uh, make your sperm uh, more motile so uh, they, they swim in a more efficient manner they, they move better and it can also according to the research improve your sperm count too so you've got more sperm and they're also stronger better improved little wrigglers what about for women then is there a similar thing uh, in their underwear choice I didn't find anything about a similar correlation with body temperature and uh, female fertility because the two systems work extremely differently. 
Yeah. Um, you know, wearing any kind of underwear that might make you more um, susceptible to stuff like thrush or any kind of genital irritation as a woman would be a bad idea. Um, but on a, just speaking more broadly, what I did find is if you look for gadgets, gizmos, lotions and potions to support fertility... So many of them are aimed at women and so much yeah. of the labour of investigating this, of, of, of spending money on stuff, of, of investing your time and, and often going through pain, especially if Craig from Baltimore, our lovely listener, is saying that he doesn't know of any fertility issues that uh, he and his his spouse have. Um, but for, for women who, who are struggling to conceive, you know, the, the pain of stuff like IVF, things, it's, 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 it's a lot. And there's comparatively less for men, even though, as Joshua told me, um, roughly speaking, if you are in a situation where trying to conceive is proving difficult, um, the quote unquote problems tend to be about 40% women, 40% men and 20% mm. a combination or unknown. So it is actually it's, it's really important that men know to play their part. Uh, and know what they can do to optimise their fertility, but also from a psychological point of view and from a relationship health point of view, being as involved as you can uh, in in trying to conceive with your partner as a as a group effort is really good for your for your relationship. And if you don't want to get the quirky pants, I mean, I presume a solution that's halfway there is just don't wear any go commando for a bit keeping your bollocks cool is a good thing for all guys when you are ttc trying to conceive that's a good abbreviation i never heard that acronym before ttc speaking of keeping things cool craig asked about tips for trying to keep the whole process of Mm. shagging to make a baby rather than for purely for pleasure uh, less of a chore because people do as we've discussed before on the show get into a really different mindset um when yeah, they're it's angsty, going it's diarized go 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 exactly yeah. and I, I chatted to my friend lucy plummer hill who uh is a, a fertility expert and talks a lot about trying to conceive in, in very personal ways lucy was telling me that one thing that she and her partner mike found helpful was that she was tracking her ovulation and her menstrual cycle so that she knew when she was uh, optimally ready to to make a baby uh but rather than actually just tell mike um, she would leave a post-it note on the fridge so that it gave him a chance to read it and, and then make his move on her and seduce her. So they both knew that the time was right, but it felt a little bit less clinical and left some space for romance. Yes, well, Craig from Baltimore, if you do put your gonads on ice as a result of this conversation and it does result in a sprog, please let us know. We would love to hear that update. Uh, it's modernmanwith2ends.co.uk slash feedback, which is also where you have to head to if you have a question of sex for Alex to answer in a future edition of the show. Uh, all that remains is to thank our sponsors, thehandy.com. Now, you know, Handy is a piece of what's known as sex tech, and I was writing about sex tech for a magazine recently and bemoaning and groaning not for the first time about how much of it is just tech for tech's sake and how we don't need to know about how many calories we're burning when we're orgasming or like the circumference of our cocks in contrast handy uses sex tech to genuinely bring beneficial things to the user and i'm constantly impressed about how much they think about how they can create a product that really caters to what people want 
you've got stuff like the fact that it runs from a power adapter, so it's not going to like piss on your chips right when you're reaching your, vin- your vinegar strokes because it's running out of battery life. Um, they've mm. recently designed the textured stimulating sleeves that actually slip over your member and to stimulate you so that you can flip them inside out so you get two textures for the price of one. Oh, that's good. Even stuff like the lube that Handy now recommend on their site is one of my favourites. And I, I've tried a lot in my life, as you can imagine. And if you want to get your hands on one and your dick inside one, then we have a special code as well at thehandy.com. It's Foxhole, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, for free express shipping. So we'll cover the postage direct to your meaty post. OK, Alex. Well, from TTC to TTFN. That was superb. Thanks. I mean, I thought if you like my moose tea reference, you'd enjoy one to Jimmy Young. You do the moose tea, I'll do the lubricating gels. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this episode of The Modern Man, but there is just time to announce a new ambassador. It's Jonathan Peaver, who's been nominated by his brother, Greg, who says, Hi, Ollie, my brother referred me to your podcast as he's been a long-time listener and an avid fan. Now I'm trying to catch up on all the historical content, as well as waiting in anticipation for each monthly episode. I really enjoy everything about the show, so I shouted you guys a couple of beers. Thank you. If my brother Jonathan could be the ambassador of Brisbane, Australia, it will make his year at least. Uh, Jonathan, consider your year made. I now pronounce you Ambassador for Brisbane. Congratulations. Uh, until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on July the 10th. I'm So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.